John is a man who needs no introduction. He, he will therefore receive a very short one. Uh, he, as I recall reading in the Barbara Hewitt's history, was a guest of Joe Eisendrath uh, when he was 13 years old here at the round table. And on June 25th, he will observe an occasion that will put him somewhat uh, beyond that uh, number, but uh, not too far beyond John. He's spoken many times to this round table and has always been very articulate and has given us great information laced with humor. And I'm sure you'll have a touch of that this evening. He was our Nibbins Freeman honoree in 1985. <coughs> And one of the things, I've known John for a long, long time, I, I, I'm somewhat prejudiced because he, he's, he's in love with two of my granddaughters. Uh, but uh, someone gave a rather lengthy introduction to John at one time. And uh, John, after, as a result uh, of the lengthy introduction, started his talk by saying, in the time remaining, <laughs> he will tell you, <coughs> all you want to know and uh, a lot of things you probably don't know about the Commander-in-Chief and the Chief Commander, John Simon. Thank you. I've never used a microphone properly in my life, so if you can't hear, be grateful. <laughs> And I don't know why so many people are here, because all I have is a uh, few mumbling remarks about something everybody knows already. And uh, Lincoln and Grant, like Goldilocks, is a fable that everyone vaguely remembers. Lincoln initially chose generals who failed to save the Union. One was too timid, another too rash. Henry Halleck was too scholarly, Ambrose Burnside too stupid. <laughs> After a string of failures, Lincoln found Grant, who was just right to win the war. Like other fairy tales, simplified truth hardly explains complex human events, yet there's always a kernel of insight. Lincoln sought to unite war and politics, Grant to keep them separate. Grant was a military marvel, Lincoln a political genius. Once they agreed upon spheres, and, and learned to trust and defer. They formed a triumphant partnership. To reach that point, however, took time. Grant knew what was expected of him as general before he took command, but Lincoln virtually invented the role of commander-in-chief. The Constitution is relatively brief, concise, and vague when discussing the powers and responsibilities of the president. Article 2, Section 1, provides that he shall hold executive power. In section two, that he shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into actual service of the United States. When President George Washington took office, he acquired a small army led by Lieutenant Colonel Josiah Harmer. Washington appointed as Secretary of War Henry Knox who was Major General, had succeeded Washington himself as Army Commander. As Indian warfare increased, Washington replaced Harmer with Major General Arthur Sinclair, who led his forces to disastrous defeat by the Indians, then replaced him with Major General Anthony Wayne, who was victor at the Battle of Fallen Timbers. When threatened with actual insurrection in western Pennsylvania, in what was christened the Whiskey Rebellion, Washington summoned the militia of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and Virginia into federal service and personally commanded a force of some 15,000 against the rebels, who generally dispersed without bloodshed. At Washington's urging, Congress tripled the size of the regular army, although this force remained barely adequate to garrison and to protect western forts. When war with France threatened in 1798, President John Adams appointed Washington Commander-in-Chief. The Senate confirmed the appointment, and Washington prepared to act under that title. 
when war threats subsided, Washington returned to his cherished retirement. In consequence, the United States entered the 19th century with some uncertainty about the nature of the commander-in-chief, his powers, and the issue of who would command the actual armies. Presidents began to expand and to test their war powers, beginning with Thomas Jefferson, who sent naval vessels into the Mediterranean to protect American ships against the pirates of Tripoli, and only later informed Congress of what he'd done. When President Madison called out militia for the War of 1812 and three New England governors refused to comply, the Supreme Court sustained Madison. On grounds of self-defense, President Monroe ordered General Jackson into Spanish Florida in 1818 to pursue hostile Seminoles, but Jackson himself, when in the White House, sought congressional approval before employing force to suppress the South Carolina Ordinance of Nullification against the Tariff of 1832. While most presidents tended to extend their war powers, President James Buchanan retreated from joining European powers in enforcing their will upon China, explaining they could not do so without usurping the war-making power which under the Constitution belongs exclusively to Congress. But President Polk had already expended such powers by ordering troops into Texas and beyond with the expectation of provoking war with Mexico, then announcing to Congress that hostilities had already commenced. Polk also used his authority to appoint commanders in Mexico, chosen with an eye towards future presidential politics, despite his hope that uh, Whigs Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott will can't, would cancel each other as presidential candidates. They received successive Whig nominations. As a one-term congressman, Lincoln had questioned Polk's justification for the war by challenging him to name that spot where Polk alleged that American blood had been shed on American soil. Since the war had already proved a glorious success before Lincoln criticized its origin, Lincoln returned to Springfield with a clouded reputation and the odious nickname of Spotty Lincoln, or even more damning, Ranchero Spotty. While presidents explored the extent of their powers as commander-in-chief, the Army developed its own leadership structure. The Military Academy at West Point annually graduated classes of trained officers who gradually ascended ranks in either field or staff line. At commencement, most could not be accommodated into the limit slots for officers and were appointed brevet second lieutenants. Brevet meant honorary, and young officers awaited the death or retirement of a superior officer, an event that would move up anyone inferior in rank to the, in that regiment or in that staff department. From the viewpoint of an ambitious young West Point graduate, lack of provision for military retirement combined with a lack of warfare meant frustratingly long waits for promotion. Subrevit Second Lieutenant Ulysses Grant, an 1843 Military Academy graduate, waited for a regular slot for two years. Grant's regiment, the 4th Infantry, went to Louisiana when storm clouds gathered over Texas. When the regiment assembled in New Orleans, elderly Colonel Josiah Voss took command of battalion drill soon dismissed the troops and promptly dropped dead from unexpected exertion. With mixed emotions, young officers regretted the death of that admirable old colonel, yet immediately recognized that everyone else moved up one notch. As Grant recalled his services in the war with Mexico, he'd gone into the Battle of Palo Alto in May 1846 as second lieutenant, and I entered the city of Mexico 16 months later with the same rank having been in all the engagements possible for any one man and in a regiment that lost more officers during the war than it ever had present at any one engagement. My regiment lost four commissioned officers, all senior to me, by steamboat explosions during the Mexican War. But the Mexicans were not so discriminating. They sometimes picked off my juniors. If a younger officer in rank was killed, it did grant no good. You had to be senior to benefit him. Grant's services in the Mexican War won him private promotion to first lieutenant and captain. 
but although he moved up to first lieutenant in September 1847, there was no vacancy for captain in his regiment until an elderly officer died in 1854. When accepting the commission on the Pacific Coast, Grant, frustrated, ill, and lonely, also submitted his resignation. Like other officers trapped in this stagnant system, he anticipated a better life as a civilian. Captain Henry Halleck submitted his resignation the next day. Because Grant submitted his resignation as of July 31st, and Halleck the smart one as of August 1st, bureaucrats quibbled over Grant's pay for July for decades, but presumably promptly paid the more astute Halleck. How could he be paid? for all of July when he resigned on the 31st. Big deal. Other promising officers, including George McClellan and William Tecumseh Sherman, resigned for roughly the same reasons. Halleck became senior partner in the leading law firm in San Francisco. Grant failed as a Missouri farmer. Grant had left the Army to reunite his family and never expressed regret about his resignation. None of his classmates who remained in service had advanced beyond captain seven years later when the Civil War began. At the apex of the Army sat the General-in-Chief, or Commanding General. Winfield Scott, the Brigadier General in the War of 1812, and a brilliant field commander in the Mexican War, had held the office for 20 years when the Civil War began. He'd reached the age of 75 and frequently could not rise from his bed. He also fell asleep at important wartime meetings, which has set a precedent for Civil War roundtable members. <laughs> Even those under the age of 75, you are excused. My students, who are much younger than you are, have often been known to nod off when I was speaking. It's perfectly all right. Of four brigadier generals, John E. Wool was two years older than Scott. David Twiggs was forced to resign after surrendering U.S. forces in Texas to Confederates without even a token show of resistance. I'm still angry about that. William Harney negotiated with rebels in Missouri and was pushed to the sidelines. And Quartermaster General Joseph E. Johnston, the only general young enough to command effectively in the field, resigned to serve the Confederacy. Officers ultimately capable of winning the war for the Union lay mired at low rank or had resigned from the peacetime army. Since the General-in-Chief was also commanding General of the Army, the titles were frequently conflated as Commander-in-Chief of the Army. Since the latter title could be separated from the constitutionally mandated Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, the misleading title remained in use during the Civil War and in a letter to Scott on April 25, 1861, seven weeks after taking office, Lincoln referred to Scott as Commander-in-Chief, but it's the only time Lincoln ever misused that title. As president of a nation sundered by war, Lincoln became acutely conscious of his status as Commander-in-Chief. Scott retained the position of General-in-Chief for eight months, rendering Lincoln valuable service. Scott drew on his long tenure and intimate knowledge of the officer corps to provide sound advice and had attempted to persuade fellow Virginian Robert E. Lee to stand by the flag. Didn't work. Scott advised Lincoln that Fort Sumter, militarily indefensible, must be abandoned, advice ultimately ignored for Lincoln's more successful strategy. Nonetheless, Scott remained a sound thinker, however much as his existence was impaired by that steadily declining health. Ready or not, Lincoln had to take charge after the war erupted. As commander-in-chief, he proclaimed a blockade of the rebellious state, summoned troops to suppress the insurrection, suspended the writ of habeas corpus in areas close to the Capitol, and called Congress back into session on the 4th of July, a date that fell after the Kentucky elections. He'd taken action controversial at the time and since, invoking war powers, yet only in the proclamation concerning volunteers had he actually used those words, Commander-in-Chief, words that he used sparingly through the remainder of the Civil War. 
One of the more interesting examples of Lincoln's use of the phrase came in a proclamation of May 19, 1862, revoking orders issued by General David Hunter, Department of the South, imposing martial law in the states of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. Slavery and martial law in a free country are altogether incompatible, at least Hunter announced that. All slaves are therefore forever free. In response, President Lincoln stated he had no knowledge of Hunter's intention to issue such an order. Nor did he know that it was genuine, nor had he authorized any commander to free slaves, so he declared that order altogether void. I further make known, Lincoln continued, that whether it be competent for me as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy to declare the slaves of any state or states free, and whether at any time, in any case, it shall have become a necessity indispensable to the maintenance of the government to exercise such supposed power are questions which under my responsibility I reserve to myself. President Lincoln had revoked Hunter's orders, while Commander-in-Chief Lincoln reserved the right to issue such orders himself. And this he did four months later, and in both the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation and the final proclamation of the 1st of January, he invoked the powers of Commander-in-Chief. On September 13th, shortly before the preliminary proclamation, in responding to a petition of Chicago Christians, which uh, many later scholars have called an oxymoron, but they were urging emancipation, Lincoln admitted that as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy in time of war, I suppose I have a right to take any measure which may best subdue the enemy. Lincoln used the title of Commander-in-Chief sparingly, but surprisingly often in relationship to emancipation. In proclamations suspending habeas corpus, or in additional draft calls, for example, where the title might be expected, he frequently omitted it, perhaps because he knew he was entering an uncharted constitutional area. He reserved the title for emancipation. Yet any conclusion that Lincoln may have been wary of using his power during the Civil War is unwarranted, and no wise general should ever have forgotten Lincoln's power. The first to forget was McClellan. Brought to Washington to take command following the disastrous Union defeat at Bull Run, McClellan was overwhelmed by attention received from Washington officials. McClellan viewed both Lincoln and Scott with contempt. He expected to train discipline and reinforce his Army of the Potomac until assured of victory over that enormous force of rebels that threatened Washington. McClellan was wrong about enemy numbers, cruel in his treatment of Scott, whom he forced into retirement and superseded as General-in-Chief, and misjudged Lincoln's patience and forbearance. After a half year of delay, Lincoln seized control and forced McClellan into action. On January 27, 1862, Lincoln issued President's General War Order Number 1, designating February 22nd as the day for general movement by the land and naval forces of the United States against the insurgent forces. Never implemented, the order nonetheless announced Lincoln's intention to manage the war, preferably by coordinating northern strength against the rebellion. As McClellan embarked on the Peninsular Campaign against Richmond in the spring of 1862, Lincoln reaffirmed his authority by withholding an entire Army Corps for the defense of Washington and by removing McClellan from the post of General-in-Chief. For the latter, he had precedent. Scott didn't command the entire army for the period when he campaigned in Mexico. Now, Richmond was much closer than Vera Cruz, and the telegraph kept McClellan in immediate contact with Washington. Lincoln had sent a different message. McClellan expected to resume the post of General-in-Chief after capturing Richmond. McClellan wavered at those gates while Lincoln personally commanded an expedition that captured Norfolk. <coughs> 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 
you think that's a bad cough? You should have heard me a couple months ago. Wow! That was something. Finding McClellan becalmed at Harrison's Landing, Lincoln appointed Halleck to the post of General-in-Chief. Halleck had been Scott's original choice as his successor, and Halleck had made aggressive noises while commanding in the West. Lincoln expected Halleck to force McClellan to advance against Richmond or to face removal. By doing neither, Halleck set the stage for Union defeat at Second Bull Run. It wasn't all Pope's fault, someone would be happy to hear. Thereafter, Lincoln thought Halleck performed merely as a clerk and a fairly obnoxious one at that. <laughs> Halleck's continuing value as General-in-Chief consisted in his role in transmitting Lincoln's orders, becoming a mechanism through which unsuccessful generals were sacked. Every commander of the Army of the Potomac came to hate Halleck, although he still retained friends in the West, most notably Grant and Sherman. Grant recognized Halleck's friendship when challenged by McClernand during the Vicksburg campaign. Halleck proved to be Grant's staunchest ally in curbing that overly ambitious subordinate. Yet when Vicksburg fell, a military achievement of such magnitude that Grant's assignment to the Army of the Potomac loomed as a real possibility, he regarded that prospect with dismay, recognizing that this commander fell under the immediate supervision of the Commander-in-Chief and the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. As Grant expressed his concerns, he feared becoming McClellanized, by which he meant having his military actions closely scrutinized, criticized, and potentially directed at three levels of control, the Commander-in-Chief, Secretary of War, and General-in-Chief. Grant knew that Lincoln had burdened McClellan with advice and orders given his army to John Pope and destroyed his military career. Grant's independent in the West, which had brought him dazzling success and previously cost him the jealous displeasure of Halleck. Grant remembered that Lincoln had furthered the unseemly ambitions of McClernand, whom Grant had removed from command three weeks before Vicksburg surrendered. Politically, only the fall of Vicksburg justified the fall of McClernand. Lincoln understood from the outbreak of the war that success required the support of Democrats, in part acquired through their visibility and command. Democrats included West Pointers, few of whom favored the Republicans, and uniformed politicians such as Benjamin Butler. Political appointments of Democrats to command needed the balance of equally prominent Republicans like Nathaniel Banks. Lincoln further needed the support of ethnic groups especially Germans, who were gratified by appointments such as that of Franz Sigel, and Lincoln later explained that he based the promotion of General Peter Osterhaus on what we thought was high merit and somewhat on his nationality. After he had appointed General Schimmelfenig, he went around the White House for the rest of the day, saying the name over and over again. He was so tickled, appointing a general named Schimmelfenig was a way to please all Germans and to guarantee him German support so he couldn't conceal his glee. Schimmelfennig, Schimmelfennig, as if that's going to win the war. Grant shared with Halleck an aversion to appointments based primarily on political or ethnic grounds. Grant's reprieve from Eastern Command proved temporary in July 1863 when General Meade had repulsed Lee's last desperate charge at Gettysburg the day before Vicksburg surrendered, Grant and Meade shared public acclaim. Meade's failure to pursue Lee dismayed and angered Lincoln. Controversy erupted among Meade's subordinates, and the fall campaigns of the Army of the Potomac were lackluster at best. In November, Grant's dramatic victory at Chattanooga elevated him to a class by himself. Congress recognized this by creating the rank of Lieutenant General, a rank previously held only by George Washington. General Scott held it by brevet. But Lincoln hesitated before appointing Grant. At the beginning of a presidential election year, he feared that Grant might receive the Republican nomination 
and required assurances he would not become a candidate. Grant's friends gave such assurances readily and wholeheartedly. Grant had unequivocally rebuffed Democratic overtures and carried a deep distaste for politics into the White House. Nearly three years of civil war with the end beyond sight and even the outcome in doubt accounted for Lincoln's concern about his renomination and his reelection. Some Republican radicals had nominated Fremont as a protest candidate, and others already looked to Grant. At the Union Convention in June, Lincoln received every first ballot vote, except 22 Missouri votes went for Grant, later switched to make that nomination unanimous. For that matter, Grant had voted for Democrat James Buchanan in 1856 and favored Stephen A. Douglas in 1860. On the other hand, the Republican governor of Illinois had commissioned him as colonel, and he owed appointment as brigadier general to his local Republican congressman. Lincoln also knew that Grant had furthered administration policy, especially with regard to the enlistment of black troops. Lincoln wanted a general-in-chief who'd hurl the superior numbers of the Union Army against the Confederacy and not desert the Army for political office. Lincoln saw Grant as a potential political rival, as possibly another McClellan, the former military savior, then headed towards the Democratic nomination for president. Grant remembered that Lincoln had given Sherman's command to McClernand, whose ambitions included toppling Grant. Before Grant came east, Lincoln needed abundant reason to believe that Grant posed no, military, no political threat. Grant needed equal assurance that Lincoln posed no military threat, and even after the bargain was struck, both needed reassurance. As our quiz master pointed out already, Lincoln met Grant for the first time on March 8, 1864, at a crowded White House reception. To gratify public curiosity, Grant had to stand on a crimson sofa in the East Room, and of our political and military leaders, there is none who detested more standing on a sofa so everybody could gawk at him. During Grant's three days in Washington, he spent little time with Lincoln, and much of that in the presence of the cabinet. In their first private meeting, as Grant recalled it, Lincoln said that he had never professed to be a military man or to know how campaigns should be conducted and never wanted to interfere in them. This would have been news to McClellan. But that procrastination on the part of commanders and the pressure from the people at the North and Congress, which was always with him, forced him into issuing his series of military orders, some of which he conceded were mistaken. By implication, Lincoln indicated that he wouldn't treat Grant as he treated McClellan. Lincoln added that while armies were sitting down, waiting for opportunities to turn up, which might perhaps be more favorable from a strictly military point of view, the government was spending millions of dollars every day, that there was a limit to the sinews of war, and a time might be reached when the spirits and resources of the people would become exhausted. He simply wanted someone to take the responsibility and act something that Grant assured him that he'd do. Facing the uncertainties of an election year, remembering that no incumbent had been reelected since Andrew Jackson, Lincoln dared not risk responsibility for military setbacks. Grant's spring campaign opened with an exchange of formal letters. The particulars of your plan I neither know or seek to know, that's Lincoln. Should my success be less than I desire and expect, Grant responded, the least I can say is the fault is not with you. That doesn't sound much like McClellan either. Although Lincoln wrote that he didn't know the particulars of Grant's plan, Lincoln had heard overall strategy explained in sufficient detail to understand that Grant intended to use all armies in a coordinated offensive. No longer could Confederates use interior lines to counter sporadic attacks. Every army would perform some role in that grand offensive. Those not skinning can hold a leg Lincoln observed to Grant, in devising this plan, Lincoln said privately, Grant had implemented a strategy that Lincoln had always urged. 
Grant controlled five major armies. In addition to those under Grant himself and Sherman, their commanders were Republican Banks, Democrat Butler, and German Sigel. Grant shelved all three during the next year, not without a struggle, and Butler survived until after the election. On the 4th of May, Grant plunged across the Rapidan and led his armies into the wilderness, suffering tremendous casualties. Moving on his left flank, he encountered Lee again at Spotsylvania, at the North Anna, then at Cold Harbor, where the second assault proved singularly disastrous. Undaunted, Grant launched a brilliant flanking maneuver that bewildered Lee and took the Army of the Potomac south of the James River in Richmond to the thinly held Confederate lines at the vital rail center of Petersburg. Only then did Lincoln break six weeks of public silence about Grant's strategy and tactics. I begin to see it. You will succeed. God bless you all. Grant's brilliant movement across the James River to Petersburg had been followed by federal folly, incompetence, and timidity as thinly held Confederate lines stalled an assault of tenfold more troops. Grant had lost the momentum for a smashing victory, and he faced Lee's veterans in the Petersburg trenches. Furthermore, Jubal Early's corps, sent to stop David Hunter's threat to Lynchburg, had driven Federal forces into West Virginia and could look down the Shenandoah Valley toward Washington. Gradually, Grant grasped the dismal implications of those missed opportunities and settled into a siege. Meanwhile, he under underestimated Early's threat detaching troops only after Early reached Harper's Ferry. By the time Confederate troops reached the outskirts of Washington, enough of Grant's tardily sent troops had reached the forts to discourage more than a skirmish. Yet Early's Corps remained intact, threatening numerous important transportation and supply centers and weakening northern morale. To coordinate the pursuit of Early, Grant first had suggested General William B. Franklin. On July 25th, he recommended placing Meade in charge for reasons that he did not care to commit to paper. Smoldering animosities blazed in the Army of the Potomac, fanned by William F. Smith, the commander who deserved blame for the June 15th failure at Petersburg and who naturally blamed everyone else. Relentless in charges against both Meade and Butler, Smith implicated Grant himself in that failure. Both Meade and Butler reacted vigorously to criticism, Meade by loudly losing his temper, Butler by quietly plotting against his foes. To break the Petersburg siege, Coal miners in the 48th Pennsylvania dug a tunnel beneath Confederate lines, filled the end with explosives, and detonated a devastating blast. Union troops failed to exploit that opening and were repulsed with heavy losses. A battle Grant called the saddest affair I've witnessed in this war. Such opportunities for carrying fortifications I've never seen and do not expect again to have. The day after the Battle of the Crater, with Early still a threat to northern cities, Lincoln arrived at Fort Monroe for a five-hour conference with Grant. Grant had been slow and ineffective in meeting Early's threat and had not yet coordinated a unified pursuit. After leading his army on the bloody road to Petersburg, he'd not harvested the strategic rewards. If Grant had entered the wilderness, with any misconception that Lincoln had delegated management of the war, Grant received the necessary correction. Lincoln took control. As in 1862, when McClellan was closer to Richmond than Grant was two years later, the result of Early's raid might have been a detachment of troops from offensive to defensive deployment. Before Lincoln's arrival, Grant had ordered a division of cavalry to Washington but after the conference, he sent General Sheridan to take command of all troops in the area and to put himself south of the enemy and follow him to the death. When Lincoln read the telegram, he responded that such action 
would neither be done nor attempted unless you watch it every day and hour and force it. Grant then hurried to Washington to organize the pursuit of Early. In effect, Lincoln had told Grant where to go and what to do and had at least hinted what might happen if he failed. With twice as many troops as Lee, Grant had settled into a protracted siege and had allowed himself to become McClellanized. If Lincoln's intervention had been painful, it was timely and necessary. He'd withheld intervention until the case for defending Washington was unmistakable. Even Grant recognized the necessity for an offensive in the Shenandoah Valley. The fall of Atlanta in September came in time to counter Democratic claims that the war was a failure. Sherman then planned to march to the sea, a move so daring that even Grant hesitated before giving approval. Chief of Staff John Rawlins vigorously opposed the expedition and, as Grant recalled, persuaded authorities in Washington to delay that approval. Stanton telegraphed on October 12th that the, express, the president had expressed much solicitude about the plan and hoped that it would be maturely considered. Grant had already wired his approval. Sherman's celebrated Christmas gift of Savannah to Lincoln was equally Grant's triumph. By the end of 1864, after Lincoln's re-election, Sherman's capture of Savannah and General George Thomas's smashing victory at Nashville. The end of the war loomed. Efforts to negotiate peace during 1864, sometimes bizarre and always doomed, at least uncovered the two basic Confederate demands, independence and slavery. When hope for independence waned, that for slavery persisted. Confederates believed that Northerners might sacrifice emancipation for peace and reunion. Under such circumstances, Lincoln stood for an unconditional surrender and wondered whether Grant would stand firm. As a professional soldier, Grant shared the conservatism of the peacetime army. Fifteen years in the army starting at West Point had provided him with close friends now commanding rebel forces. Marriage into a family of border state slaveholders strengthened his southern ties including those to his wife's cousin, James Longstreet, who was already Grant's old army friend. Grant had demanded unconditional surrender when he had no practical alternative. How would he respond to peace initiatives and offers of negotiation? So that test came in January 1865 when Confederate emissaries arrived at City Point, requesting permission to visit Washington to confer with Lincoln about the existing war as they termed it, and upon what terms it may be terminated, Lincoln sent an emissary to pose conditions. Unless the commissioners discussed a common country, no conference could take place. Grant, who'd served dinner to the commissioners and regretted every mouthful, now realized that he blundered through cordiality to, to underscore that point. Lincoln told Grant to allow nothing which is transpiring change, hinder, or delay your military movements or plans. As we all know, Lincoln spent many years as a lawyer in Illinois, and the basic premise of American law is that a lawyer says the same things three ways, change, hinder, or delay. In a telegram to Stanton, Grant asserted that the commissioners had shown him that their intentions were good and their desire sincere to restore peace and union, so he forced Lincoln's hand. Induced by a dispatch of General Grant, this is a wire to uh, Secretary of State Seward, I join you at Fort Monroe as soon as I can come. The conference itself, to which Grant was not invited, proved entirely unproductive. Lincoln demanded reunion and emancipation, and Jefferson Davis had empowered his emissaries to concede nothing but only to urge a harebrained scheme to unite in an expedition to drive the French from Mexico. Lincoln gained nothing by conferring and wouldn't have gone without Grant's urging, a point he emphasized in reporting to Congress. 
In February, conversations between General Ord and General Longstreet on political prisoners veered toward peace negotiations. When Lee requested a meeting with Grant to discuss matters further, Grant forwarded that message to Washington and received an unequivocal reply from Stanton. The President directs me to say to you that he wishes you to have no conference with General Lee unless it be for the capitulation of Lee's army or on purely minor and, mili and purely military matters. He instructs me to say that you are not to decide, discuss, or confer upon any political question. Such questions the President holds in his own hands and will submit them to no military conferences or conventions. Meantime, you are to press to the utmost your military advantages. Back a month in January, Grant had discussed with Lincoln the awkward status of the President's son, Robert, a student at Harvard College and Law School during a war to which his father had sent so many other sons. Please read and answer this letter as though I was not president, but only a friend. That letter from Lincoln. That is a tactic which Lyndon Johnson frequently, oh, this is just your old friend Lyndon calling. I want you to forget that I'm president of the United States now, uh, but I want you to do this and this. Lincoln did it first. He invented that one. As though I were not president, but only a friend. Robert wishes to see something of the war before it ends. Well, who wouldn't? Um, I do not want to put him in the ranks, nor yet to give him a commission, to which those who have already served long are better entitled and better qualified to hold. Could he, without embarrassment to you or detriment to the service, go into your military family with some nominal rank, I and not the public, furnishing the necessary means? If no, say no without the least hesitation, <laughs> because I'm as anxious and as deeply interested that you shall not be encumbered as you can be yourself. Well, if he was that anxious, he wouldn't have written the dumb letter. Grant responded that he would be most happy to have him in my military family. Rank, he continued, would be immaterial, but I would suggest that of captain, as I have three staff officers now of considerable service in no higher grade. Indeed, I have one officer with only the rank of lieutenant, hint, hint, who has been in the service from the beginning of the war. This, however, will make no difference, and I would still say, give the rank of captain. The next day, Robert wrote that he needed to return to Cambridge, and then he wanted to attend his father's second inauguration, so he asked Grant's kind indulgence before reporting. Now, I will admit that Lincoln's second inaugural address was a little bit worth hearing. On the other hand, Grant had very few letters from people who wanted to postpone going to war so that they could spend some more time with their fathers. His father had already formally nominated him for a commission as captain. Remember that bit about me and not the public furnishing the necessary means? If Robert's princely status and aristocratic airs annoyed Grant, they certainly annoy me, he gave no indication of his displeasure. He remembered the power of the commander-in-chief. Robert's staff appointment so unwarranted a favor cemented a personal relationship between Grant and Lincoln. Robert's prolonged civilian life and military sinecure probably owed much to his mother's increasing emotional deterioration after her son Willie's death, in February 1862, her behavior grew steadily more irrational and intolerable. Perhaps unaware of the extent of the problem, Grant invited Lincoln to visit in March, thinking that he wanted to see Robert, but would prefer to have a formal invitation. Besides, Robert had no staff role greater than escorting his parents. Accompanied by Marion Tyad, Lincoln arrived at City Point on March 24th for a visit that lasted two weeks. Jealous of Grant's growing fame, Mary almost immediately insulted Grant's wife, Julia. On two carriage rides to inspections, Mary launched into hysterical outbursts that embarrassed everybody, 
Julia later insisted that the Grants decline an invitation to Ford's theater that her husband might have accepted since it came from Lincoln. Sherman and Porter remembered that Lincoln was ready to recognize existing Southern governments whenever the war ended with liberal views toward rebels and peace on almost any. Both Sherman and Porter, however, sought to justify Sherman's overly generous terms to Confederate General Joseph Johnston, given after Lincoln died and quickly disavowed by both President Johnson and by Secretary Stanton. Sherman had negotiated the surrender of all Confederate armies and provided that their weapons would be taken to their state arsenals and stipulated that the U.S. would recognize the authority of these state governments and the political and property rights of their citizens. Had Sherman's terms received approval, slavery might well have survived the war when former Confederate states refused to ratify the 13th Amendment. If Sherman had been overwhelmed by the congratulatory and harmonious mood in the cabin of the River Queen, Grant remembered the harsh tone of the rebuke he received after he proposed a military convention with Lee. He also remembered Lincoln's preconditions for negotiations presented to Confederate commissioners in February, that the Union should be preserved and that slavery should be abolished. Porter, who unconvincingly claimed to remember that conversation in great detail, reported that Grant sat quietly smoking throughout, speaking only once, to ask something about Sherman's destruction of railroads. Had Lincoln lived, or so Sherman insisted, the surrender terms to Johnston would have received presidential approval, but Grant knew better. He made excuses for Sherman and embraced Sherman's quarrels with Stanton and Halleck without deviating from the central principle that Sherman had no authority to offer terms beyond those given to Lee at Appomattox. In later years, Grant frequently created the impression that mutual harmony and respect had existed from their first meeting and persisted until Lincoln's death. In reality, though, Grant and Lincoln forged an effective partnership despite initial uneasiness. General-in-Chief Grant had to act vigorously within the military sphere, tread softly in the political sphere, and understand that hazy border between them. Success always depended upon remembering Lincoln's power as Commander-in-Chief. I thank you very much, and uh, am I allowed to answer questions? I think I've spoken forever, uh, but on the other hand, I, I really enjoy answering questions. If anybody enjoys asking them, well, there's one right there. Uh, Scott's uh, role in Uh, at the opening of the war, Scott devised that, that so-called anaconda plan, which meant uh, a firm blockade around the uh, southern coast, pressure on all the borders, and an expedition down the Mississippi to divide uh, uh, the Confederacy in, in, into two portions, and then a constricting uh, movement, hence the name the anaconda policy. Uh, it was much ridiculed at the time because it seemed to uh, forecast a long war with a lot of operations. And uh, it looked suspiciously like what the North really did to win the war. That is, the blockade, yes, the pressure on all sides, the opening of the Mississippi midway through the war, through the Vicksburg campaign, and then a coordinated campaign beginning in 1864. Uh, Scott received a lot of uh, ridicule and perhaps uh, later should have received credit for forecasting successful strategy, but he never did. He never did. I like Scott, partly because he fell asleep at important meetings. <laughs> it 
uh, the question is, uh, how did uh, Lincoln respond to that criticism of Grant for heavy losses in the Overland campaign all the way through from uh, the, uh, the crossing the Rapidan to Cold Harbor? And the answer is he didn't. He acted as if uh, he was unaware of that campaign. He made no public pronouncements. He virtually ignored it. In effect, he treated it as if it were Grant's campaign alone. And then only after Grant has uh, crossed the James does he say, I begin to see it, you will succeed. God bless you all. He had received from a newspaper reporter, Henry Wing, um, a message uh, from Grant after the Battle of the Wilderness where Grant, who was in the familiar position of generals who had turned back before to regroup in Washington, had declared that there would be no turning back. And Henry Wing, who was a young man, newspaper reporter, uh, went to Washington and in later years wrote that classic of Lincolniana, Lincoln Kissed Me, saying that Lincoln was so excited to hear that wonderful news from Grant, he actually planted a kiss on Wing's forehead. This is a book that has not been discovered by the gay Lincoln people yet. And uh, I count on your discretion to keep it from them. Uh, but at any rate, it is a classic, When Lincoln Kissed Me, But Keep It to Yourself. Yes, sir. That's a very good question. How Scott would have performed as a battlefield commander um, had he only possessed the strength and uh, vigor to uh, lead the armies. All we know is that uh, Grant, like almost every American, admired Scott's brilliant campaign uh, from Veracruz to Mexico City. It was considered a classic. Grant had paid close attention to it. Other Americans saw it as a model, a model of uh, quick action and uh, resourcefulness, and a much younger Scott uh, surely would have been a uh, uh, fine antidote to an overly young McClellan. To win the war in 1862, maybe in 61, 61, 62, let's put it this way, what the Union Army needed was a combination of Scott and McClellan, and it could not get it, largely because McClellan refused to pay any attention to Scott, a uh, doddering old idiot, um, and words like that are the ones that he used, uh, who was blamed for the delay in launching a campaign of the Army of the Potomac. It, it's the kind of situation that called for the maturity of age and the vigor of youth and they managed to get neither. If I could weigh in on this for just a second, too. All of Scott's subordinates now had ranking positions in the Confederate Army, except for the friend he fell out with, General Worth, who died shortly after. They might have, in fact, perceived his strategies because they were all his subordinates, which is why Worth was never able to reclaim his name, because all of the people So you're saying that Scott as leader might have been a greater disaster due to the intimate knowledge of his tactics and strategy by so many high-ranking Americans. Well, I, I think that's a very good point. Um, but then who didn't know everybody else in that circle of military command? It is true. Of course, uh, Scott was well-known to uh, so many of the uh, Southern leaders. Um, but really, in terms of uh, basic uh, strategy, what's the great complexity of all this? That is the uh, massing of troops, the taking into account of the new conditions of war, which is not a Scott thing, uh, it's more a Grant and Sherman thing. Uh, I just don't think that having uh, uh, those connections uh, in the South 
would have harmed as, as much as he would have been aided by the fact that he was a Virginian and that uh, that early stage of the war. He was a man who would not take any guff about the Union, which was an example to everybody. I think his patriotic example would have had a lot of weight, but I think your point's well taken, too. Hey, Jack. I think it's an excellent question. It's hard to say. I think uh, um, it's remarkable how little Grant learned from the presidents under whom he served. Uh, in the case of Lincoln, I'm not sure he fully understood what Lincoln was doing. And if he had an opportunity to learn more, he would have avoided it because it would have meant contact with Mary Lincoln. She really poisons the atmosphere, and I think she prevents uh, any kind of relationship between Grant and Lincoln that might have led to a sort of uh, too leery experience. As for Andrew Johnson, nothing's to learn there except the wrong way to be president of the United States, at which uh, Johnson seems to have been one of the major experts. Um, and Grant, uh, finally, in the uh, third sense, had been successful as a general in the Civil War because he was so unmilitary. He threw away the book. He did things his own way. He understood what generals were supposed to do, but he wanted to do them a little differently. And um, uh, understanding the realities, both of the military system and the new age he was in, he was successful as an unmilitary general, an unpredictable general, and he now wanted to be an unpolitical president. But he didn't understand the field as well. Uh, it's a little trickier when you got a whole Congress. A rebel army's one thing, but a Congress is a lot fiercer. And uh, uh, Grant was playing with people who, who knew the game much better than he did. On the other hand, uh, he learned it. He learned it on the job. And uh, he's not on my list of 10 worst presidents. They're putting together another one, this fellow Steve Neal, who does it every once in a while, comes out of a hole to ask, who are the 10 best presidents, 10 worst presidents? <laughs> He's at it again. Uh, I was able to get 10 worse presidents than Grant without breaking a sweat. And I have several uh, in reserve and one who's coming on very, very fast. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I won't accept that because I've always put Harding right at the bottom of all our presidents. You know, all that stuff about Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, I think distracted us from the basic truth that Harding was much worse with women than Bill Clinton ever could be. Uh, that it was really disgusting the way Harding behaved in that respect and with no redeeming social values elsewhere, which at least are claimed for Clinton, though there's some dispute about it. Uh, Harding is absolutely at the uh, uh, bottom level of my list of presidents. You know, his uh, uh, mistress, Nan Britton, with whom he uh, conversed in uh, that closet, was described as a chubby teenager. Who does that make you think of? <laughs> All right. Um, now, as for Harry Truman, where does he come from? Missouri from a rebel background, uh, vaguely uh, uh, pro-Confederate all the way through, I think he was able to uh, um, come beyond it in his years in the White House, but in the years of his reminiscences, he tended to revert to a rather strongly uh, pro-Southern, pro-Confederate uh, uh, boyhood. And uh, I'm sorry um, that he was so wrong, but wrong he was. He just didn't know anything about Harding or Grant. Yes, sir. The Committee on the Conduct of the War. Um, it was more of a problem for Meade than it was for Grant. Um, 
first of all it was the intention of that committee to back winners that is to pick winners to back winners to be on the winning side and basically it was grant who represented what they wanted to get behind what they wanted to claim credit for on the other hand after the battle of gettysburg and the falling apart of some of the command structure in the army of the potomac they began to nibble away at me they began to make his life a hell to uh... investigate these rumors that he had counseled uh... retreat uh... when he had not counseled uh... retreat that uh... he had been uh, timid that he had been weak and that uh had failed to follow up the uh, Battle of Gettysburg. And, and there we see the working out of the uh, uh, strong political bias of that uh, committee, which is uh, Republican and uh, aggressive and uh, vindictive. Um, Grant really is more a beneficiary than a victim of the Committee on the Conduct of the War. They don't dare look into most of the... Uh, uh, grant problems, though they are interested in the crater, of course, uh, but not necessarily for the purpose of uh, sending up Grant. He's a beneficiary, I'd say. Um, okay. The question is about uh, Grant the Butcher, that uh, image from the uh, 64 campaign. Um, on the one hand, it, it is perfectly true that the casualties suffered by the Army of the Potomac as it advanced overland uh, um, from the Rapidan uh, uh, to the James River are appalling, that they uh, compare uh, with the initial size of Lee's army that uh, the second assault on Cold Harbor is especially difficult to justify or uh, to excuse on any grounds. Grant wasn't even commanding the Army for part of that period. Meade is. He's supposed to be. Grant is accompanying that Army. The Army is actually uh, an Army commanded by Meade, that is the Army of the Potomac. It is accompanied by the Ninth Corps under Burnside, who ranks Meade, and therefore Grant is along to coordinate those two. That is, it's not pure Grant, but that's kind of a cop-out rather than an answer. The answer, I think, essentially is Grant took, as any leader should, the most difficult task upon himself. He could have stayed in the West and commanded the armies uh, that Sherman eventually led into Georgia, into Atlanta, and then on to the sea. He took that position because he knew it was the toughest, uh, because it would be an encounter with Robert E. Lee, the best the Confederacy had to offer, and under uh, grounds that, and on ground that had already been contested and uh, lost by previous commanders. His job in the campaign of 64 was to make sure that the Confederates would not detach any men from Lee's army to send west or to any other theater of war. And uh, in looking at those casualties, in the 64 campaign, uh, it's worth remembering they couldn't, they didn't, uh, and that did make all the difference ultimately in winning the war. It was his job to hold on, as Lincoln said, with bulldog grip and chew and choke as much as possible that he accomplished. His earlier battles uh, are not notable for loss of life the Vicksburg campaign in particular, uh, is an example of big gains with relatively little uh, loss in uh, battle. And it's uh, as much a part of the uh, Grant story as the encounter with Lee, though I will say the encounter with Lee is better remembered. Well, it's my job to see that it isn't. <laughs> John, thank you very much hey, for thank a you. wonderful address. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
And <laughs> in remembrance of the occasion, I, we want to present you uh, with a, a memento from our archives. It's a letter uh, from Eisenhower written on the 25th anniversary of uh, our uh, round table. Uh, Brooks Davis was the president that year. What we like about it is it provides a synopsis of his opinion of the Civil War and the meaning of it all. So presented to John Y. Simon for gallant service, the Chicago Civil War Roundtable, June 9th, 2000. Thank, Thank you. you very Thank much. Thank you, John. Well, I would mail that to you. I don't think you want to pay would it you to get please? it first, I do can't. <laughs> Okay, I can't handle it. <laughs> Uh, as we close the meeting, thank you very much for being here. Um, I do want to thank you very much for everything you did to support the activities of the organization uh, this year. Uh, the best is yet to come, and it's my pleasure to introduce uh, your new president, a man with impeccable credentials, uh, a person who has authored a book, as uh, many of you know, More Generals in Gray. He's written a number of articles for Civil War Times Illustrated uh, and any number of other Civil War uh, magazines. He's been on the speaker's circuit, and he's known as your quiz master. So it is my pleasure to introduce your new president, Bruce Allardyce. Congratulations. Don't, don't get away, Chuck. <laughs> Chuck's going to be a tough act to follow, I can tell you that. First of all, Chuck, it's traditional that the departing president be given a gift or honorarium from the organization. Chuck has chosen that his gift be a donation to the Fort Branch Battlefield Commission. That's a fort in North Carolina that they're trying to restore. Very worthy project. They do have a website. If you just get a computer, Chuck, you could look at it. <laughs> I'd like to give you this letter. Thank you. This is a copy of the letter we're going to be sending to Fort Branch along with a donation check. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you very much. Thank you. And one more thing. This is sort of uh, from me to you, Chuck. <laughs> I know of your interest in North Carolina in the Civil War, so as just a little token of the good work that I think you've done and the friendship that you've exhibited to me and to everybody else here, I'd like to present this book. It's a book on the Burnside Expedition to North Carolina, which I believe you do not have. No, I don't. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I it really appreciate it. Really Thank you. Really. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> I'll take this, Gail. First thing I'll announce is the quiz master for next year is going to be David Zucker, right here. He's agreed. He's going to do a bang up job. He's won enough of them, so I'm sure he'll do well at the rule. Um, only last thing would be we're going to have an executive committee meeting uh, July 8th at the Notre Dame High School, 9 o'clock. You've gotten that in, the, in your newsletter. A uh, more formal letter will be going to the executive committee, but we'll be meeting then, deciding about things for next year. Otherwise, I'd say have a good evening and hope you, hope you get back in time to watch the Cubs-Sox game. <laughs> there we go.